Today's episode is sponsored by By Heart, which is an infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Their mission is simple, make the best formula in the world. In our house, we never skim on family time together on the weekends. Instead of racing around crazy, we prioritize time at home, time to relax, time to do fun, crazy things that we wouldn't have ordinarily. And you know who else doesn't skim? By heart. By heart is the only American-made infant formula with globally sourced ingredients to use organic, grass-fed whole milk without a drop of skim. Whole milk is full of healthy fats like naturally occurring MFGM, which play an important role in baby's brain development and growth. Are you curious about ByHeart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with codename Zibby20 for a limited time. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings, but this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. I am so excited because today is Sandra Miller's launch day for Wednesdays at One, which is being published by our publishing company here at Zibby Media, Zibby Books. Congratulations to Sandra. And I am so excited. I met Sandra when she wrote a memoir called Trove and came on my podcast for that. And I just loved that book. And when she submitted her unagented manuscript for uh, Wednesdays at One, I was so excited because I loved her writing style. And then we bought it. And here it is. Amazing. Uh, here's Sandra's bio. Oh, but first we have a special thing going on, which is that Sandra's book is the first book of ours to partner with Moleskin. We're doing this amazing partnership with Moleskin and you can get 15% off all paper products and bags along with free personalization with the purchase of a notebook with code Zibby. If you go to moleskin.com, M-O-L-E-S-K-I- ne.com and use code Zibby. Back to Sandra Miller though. Sandra A. Miller, here's her bio, is the author of the award-winning memoir Trove, A Woman's Search for Truth and Buried Treasure. She has written about relationships and self-discovery for the Boston Globe, the Christian Science Monitor, and many other publications. Her essay about her unconventional love story with her husband was made into the short film Wait, directed by Trudy Styler, starring Carrie Washington. She teaches writing at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and lives outside of Boston with her husband, with whom she has two grown children. So again, by the way, as you listen to this episode, Moleskin, 15% off all paper products and bags, along with free personalization with the purchase of a notebook. Visit moleskin.com and enter code Zibby, M-O-L-E-S-K-I-N-E.com. Congrats, Sandra. 
Welcome, Sandra. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, your second time, the first time for Trove, which as you know, I loved. And now for Wednesdays at one, which we're publishing at Zippy Books. How cool. Thank you, Zibby. It is so fun to be here a second time and to be working with you on this book. Yay. Okay, Sandra, can you please tell listeners what Wednesdays at One is about? Sure. So Wednesdays at One is a literary suspense set in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's the story of a clinical psychologist, Gregory Weber, who is burdened by the memory of this horrific thing he did as a teenager, something that no one else knows about. So now he's in his 40s. He lives a privileged life with his wife and his two children, but he's carried this lie of omission into his marriage. So it has really infected his marriage that nobody else knows this this thing. And then one Wednesday at one o'clock in his therapy practice, this beautiful disarming woman appears. Her name is Mira. And she seems to know things about Gregory's past. And he is, his life is thrown into turmoil and um, by her presence and her knowledge of what he'd done. And what eventually happens is he becomes very vulnerable to her beauty and her probing questions and the therapy roles reverse. And he becomes the client desperate to uncover his connection to Mira and maybe find some redemption for his troubled soul. And the the central question of the novel is, who is this Mira? Is she an avenging spirit related to his past sin? Is she a femme fatale, a wannabe psychologist, or or maybe a manifestation of Gregory's pain? So that's that's what really drives the novel. So cool. Where did this idea come from? Well, it's sort of a funny and horrible story. Back about 27 years ago, my husband and I were just dating. We've been married 25 years. And he called me one day from work. He's a clinical psychologist like Gregory, but he does not carry any horrible burdens from his past that I know about. But he called one day and he said, shut the windows. And these were landline days. And I ran over, shut the window. And I came back and I said, what what is going on? He said, a client just came into my office and she knew things about me. She's probably been listening like through our open windows at night. And it turned into a four-year stalking horror story, honestly. But the seed of this novel was planted that day. I wasn't interested in telling the story of a stalker who, you know, felt proprietary toward my husband's home life. But I was very curious about this idea about a psychologist Um, who one day a client comes into his office and knows things about him that she shouldn't know. What if the psychologist has a buried secret and this person comes in and starts talking about it? How would the tables turn? How would he become vulnerable when usually the psychologist is in control and the client feels very vulnerable? So I love this idea of this role reversal. I tried it in a lot of iterations over the years. Again, this was 27 years ago that this happened. And I couldn't quite find a way to tell this story. And then, um, but it stayed with me. It always intrigued me, this idea, this concept. And then it was the pandemic. It was 2020. And I got a terrible case of vertigo. And it was, it lasted through the spring of 2020 and I couldn't write, I couldn't look at my computer screen, but you might know um, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, yep. that beautiful book that talks about morning pages where every morning she was on, she was on my podcast. 
right? She's amazing. Amazing. Right? I love uh, her. She's okay. simply yeah. amazing. And that was 50 years ago. She wrote, she wrote that book. It's still so beautiful and so relevant today. And I started doing the morning pages because I couldn't look at my computer screen. So I would just close my eyes in the morning and scribble out a couple pages in my notebook. That was my writing for the day. In my head, I thought, oh no, this is it. I'll never write again. I'll never look at a computer screen again. But that's not actually what happened. The, the vertigo lifted in the summer of 2020. And with it, I think post-morning pages came this clarity of this story of this psychologist, Gregory Weber. And I sat down and I knew how to tell this story. It came to me almost fully formed like a download. And every day for the summer of 2020, you'll recall there was nothing to do, right? <laughs> we, had, we couldn't go to parties. We couldn't talk to people. We lived in our pods. And every morning for that summer, I wrote a thousand words a day. And it was weirdly easy. This might be my one-off as far as easy books go. But by 90 days later, I had a 90,000 word manuscript that became, that was Wednesdays at one. It was very, the book that is coming out now is very similar to that original book. So, wow. so, and there are other complexities over the years that have influenced this story, but really, I think it's been a, it's been like a 27 year journey. Oh my gosh. Wait, the two things I want to go back to, first of all, the vertigo, was it caused by COVID? Um, I think COVID? it was, I, I, I think it was caused by, I did like a yoga technique Mm -hmm. And I might have just been a little bit vulnerable to it, but it really left me spinning my head dizzy. If you've ever had vertigo, it's terrible. <laughs> you it's, can't. I had, because I had COVID and I had vertigo when I had it. And I was like calling doctors and they're like, no, no, this isn't a side effect. Maybe it's your inner ear. I was like, it's not randomly my inner ear. The week I got COVID, I have COVID. I'm really sick. And now I have to hold onto my walls to get to the bathroom. Like I'm on like a moving ship. It was the worst. And I'm like, people live with this all the time. How, did, how do they live with this? It's terrible. I, I was asking myself the same question. The first few nights that I had it, I thought, like, I can't, I can't live with this. And then it slowly started to lift and there are some techniques and I had some good therapists and doctors who helped me, but whew, that was a challenge. But to then come out of it with the gift of this book, I think that they are inextricably linked. Honestly, wow. I think morning pages, the dark night of the soul that was COVID and then opening up to possibility. I'm, I, tend to frame things in a spiritual context anyway. And so I absolutely believe that sometimes what we see as truly our biggest burdens end up being a big gift. And this was one of those cases. That sounds really easy to replicate those conditions. So you'll have no problem moving forward. You know, I am knocking on wood, man. You never get vertigo again. <laughs> no, I literally, I think I had it for two days. It was like the worst thing ever. And now let's go back to this four-year stalking of your husband and you. What on earth? Tell me more about that. Oh my goodness. It was, the word is, I guess, nuts. So a client became obsessed with him. And again, this is nothing to do with the actual plot of the book. My Mira is not obsessed with Gregory in the book. There are different reasons that she's pursuing him. But in real life, she just, just a client who became obsessed with my husband and started stealing our mail and yeah. showing up on our doorstep, coming to the house when we weren't there, listening in the bushes. <laughs> and so it culminated four years later with a high-speed police chase 
in our neighborhood after she tried to draw attention to herself by saying threatening suicide on our front porch. And she ended up in a psychiatric hospital. Um, there was a time a few years later, our son was born and my husband was driving with our son in the back and he looked in the rear view and he saw her <gasps> and he drove right to the police station and that ended that. So, so it was, but the interesting things to be is I never really, I, I wrote a few essays about this, but it was so disruptive to our lives that I, I never wanted it to find its way into a longer piece of work because it was, it was truly, we were beginning our relationship. This was the beginning of our marriage. And every time we came home answering machine days, the entire tape of the answering machine would have run out by her phone calls. We changed our number. We did everything. Oh but my gosh. It That's was. Insane. That's insane. Why did it take so long for it to stop? Like, are, can you not? We needed to get restraining orders and there were some issues because my husband was her therapist. So he had to do it very carefully, but finally it, oh my it, gosh. Court, it became a court case and it's um, gratefully, <laughs> you know, there were, there were years that I would pick up the phone and I'd just be trembling, but. Um, oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Where is she now? Do we, do you know? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to know. But I just know that we're fine. And again, I'm knocking on wood. Knocking on wood a lot in this conversation. Um, yeah, we're, she seems, everything seems to have resolved. And it's been, it's been a couple of, it's been 20 years maybe now that things have been clear and clean and fine. So. Did you ever question your husband in the beginning? Like, was she, was there ever anything like to, to the Gregory, you know, model? I don't know. Was there ever any question that's, in your that's mind. That's an interesting question. What I thought is, and this kind of speaks to the book a little bit, I thought I would know how to handle this. Like, you know, here's my husband, a trained, you know, Yale psychologist with a PhD. And I decided that I would, if this happened to me, if this situation happened to me, I would absolutely be able to take it, you know, bring it under control. And that, that wasn't the case because we're dealing with, um, you know, a very mentally ill person. And so that wasn't the case. I would not have known how to handle it. And so I didn't question my husband as, what did you do? I questioned him as, are you handling this correctly? <laughs> Which of course he was. So, I mean, I feel like everybody questions if their spouse is handling something correctly. Well, no, maybe they don't. And <laughs> maybe I, and you know, in the book, Gregory's wife, Liz questions, there's, Oh, you're seeing this woman. Yes. Oh, she's the, she's your patient. Well, what is going on with her? What are you not telling me? Are you handling this strangely? So there are ways that I think as as the wife of a therapist, you always have ideas about how things might be done, or you know, wife or spouse of a therapist, I shouldn't say wife. So, um, did you ever consider becoming a therapist after you saw? Like one of those things like, well, I could totally do that. I might as well just like go off and become one. Well, I've always joked if Mark ever missed work, which he doesn't, um, I could definitely pinch hit. I have I have what I call a pillow talk understanding of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what he practices. So at night when I can't fall asleep, I'll tell him to bore me to sleep. So <laughs> he'll, he'll say, and he'll tell me session, like details of session dynamics, not actual dynamics that, you yeah. know, not with real people, but just general therapeutic techniques, session dynamics. He'll say, 
if we're dealing with somebody with OCD, maybe what we would do is have them touch the bottom of their feet and not wash their hands. Like he'll tell me in this very droning voice to bore me. So my pillow talk understanding of session dynamics has led me to believe that he's out for a couple of sessions. I could go in and, you know, figure it out with a client. But it's so funny. Honestly, my well, I went to college thinking I would be a therapist, as many people who grew up in dysfunctional families do. I think that's often a path because we are so desperate to understand our families or resolve the issues and the dysfunction. My sister's a wonderful social worker. She took it all the way. But I was in college thinking, I'll be a psychologist, I'll be a therapist, and then then I'll get my life straightened out and my mother's and my father's. And fortunately, a wonderful, the chair of the English department um, handed me back my first paper for literary analysis, you know, English 101. And she she whispered as she handed it back, she said, you're a very good writer. You should be an English major. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds good. Like, <laughs> And that, that everything turned on that moment being seen by this very brilliant professor who was the chair of the English department and still a friend today. So just like that, all of my dreams of my therapy dreams ended. Oh my gosh. Well, they all got to live live out in, in writing this book. So there you go. It's like, it's very true. Okay. We can't bubble wrap our kids to keep them safe, but we can give ourselves some peace of mind now with the Life 360 app, which I am obsessed with. I first heard about this from a girlfriend at a party who told me that this was the app to use. So I got it. And now I am obsessed. It's a family connection and safety app that lets you track the people and things that are most important to you. And it's much more than sharing location. It is about safety. It keeps families connected and protected throughout the day. Plus, it helps you find your things. So I have tiles, one of which I put on my phone, which I lose a hundred times a day, and I can find it through the app whenever I lose it. Also, it lets me put in locations of interest. So I get alerts when my kids reach school after taking the bus or when my husband gets to LA or whoever you want to track. You can do it with Life360 and feel very protected and safe and it makes life better. It makes peace of mind better. Life 360 has my family's back when they're on the road, and I can track their stuff too if I need to. Plus, of course, it's a lifeline during emergencies because you can have crash detection to know if one of the kids is in an accident and with two almost driver's license kids, that is super important to me too. So put away the bubble wrap and protect your loved ones with Life 360. Visit life360.com or download the app today and use code BOOKS, B-O-O-K-S, all caps, to get one month of the gold package for free, plus 15% off all tiles. That's life360.com, code BOOKS. Tell me a little more, if you don't mind, and if I'm prying, then you don't have to talk about it, but about your dysfunctional family growing up. Well, I think what happened is I was a very creative child who was really interested in the arts and and writing and theater. And I grew up in a very staid middle-class family, which emphasized being a good Catholic girl and behaving yourself and not causing trouble and not bragging about yourself or not 
you know, not being creatively effusive, which I was. So it was very, very hard. It was, there was a lot of violence in my home. And as soon as I could, as soon as I went on to college and then beyond college, I just needed to escape and see the world and just sort of stretch my creative muscles. And um, interestingly, my dad was much older. He had been in World War II in Japan. And right out of college, I worked in publishing for a few years. And then all I wanted to do was go to Japan and understand where my father had been in World War II. My father died when I was in college. And so as far as the dysfunction goes, it was oppressive and it was burdensome to me all my life. And yet at the same time, I really wanted to understand it. And I explored that in Trove, my memoir, that felt important to me to figure out who I was, what I was looking for, the loving connection to my family that I never had. And so the beauty of dysfunction is if you work with it, if you take it into your creative life, you can transform the dysfunction into something creative, like a book. In my case, I'm very proud of my memoir because instead of going around saying, well, that childhood sucked, <laughs> I I said, let, let me understand what that was. Who were my parents? My father had terrible burdens as a man growing up who went to war. My mother was a 50s housewife, also probably had some creative dreams that had to be repressed at the time because, you know, women weren't allowed to, ex, you know, explore themselves to the full extent of their abilities or interests. So I do think that, and I tell my students this because I, I teach creative nonfiction at UMass Lowell, and I tell them all the time, one of the great gifts of this writing process is when you take a very hard story and you turn it into something beautiful, you've made art out of, out of your hardships. And I can't think of a better way to to work with with our burdens and to make them something creative and productive. And do you think that takes the burden of the dysfunction off? Like turning it into art, does it free you? Does it? I think so. I think it does. I think while you're in it, for example, while I was writing my memoir, I had to re-traumatize myself daily at my desk, remembering the stories, remembering the violence, how unseen I felt, the shame that I carried out of that family. and. At the same time, I can hold that book in my hand and say, I I worked that through. I I did that work and I wrote my way through that. And I think it, I think it's cleared me. I think that's why people love to write. Um, I think that's why memoir is so popular now, because I think a lot of see a lot of women for sure who are exploring their lives in middle age and want to make sense of something, whether it's been hardship, divorce, struggles, or just a beautiful life. And I think there's something very liberating about that, the, the writing process, as well as a finished product. So in a way, it's like you have become a therapist to all those people. <laughs> Thank you, Simi. That's what I was hoping you'd say. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm so predictable. <laughs> I do love that. I love when somebody reads my memoir or even the novel and says, oh, those characters, I got to think about shame and guilt and and what we carry into marriages and the 
and the struggles of a long marriage. So, so maybe we're all sort of psychologists as writers, right? Yeah. Right. I was also a psychology major. I wanted to be a psychologist. I went, spent a summer at a, at a psychiatric hospital and I don't know what that reveals about my family of origin, but I'll just leave it there. <laughs> okay. I won't ask any other questions. You know, one of the interesting things about Wednesdays at one, many, well, there are many, but it's that you are writing so effectively from the point of view of a man and you are obviously not a man. And so this is something that uh, doesn't always happen nowadays. It's come under the micro microscope spotlight, whatever of, is this sort of okay to do? How do we all feel about this collectively? Who can you write about? What race can you write from? What gender? Da, 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 da. How do you feel about this discussion? Well, I think, um, I think it's a very long discussion, but I've heard some people talk about it and this is the line I take right now. I think that as fiction writers, we have the right to explore the characters that we want to explore that come to us. And yet there's a moment right now in time that we need to be very sensitive to this issue and be aware that we are not making assumptions about other people, about other cultures. So I feel like if we do this, if we take on a character that doesn't, you know, relate to our own identity, that we have to be do it very consciously, very thoughtfully, with oversight of readers of that background. And I hope the tables are turning a little bit that there's that this is opening up for fiction writers. That's because that's the beauty of fiction. I tried to write this story from a female perspective. I tried to write it from the perspective of the client. And the story really happened when I inhabited Gregory's brain and mind and psychosis. And that's when I knew I could tell this story. And so what a what a loss it would be if we think we have to tell a story a certain way that aligns with our identity or eliminate characters. I have a lesbian couple in my story. One of the women is Puerto Rican. I grew up in a very predominantly Puerto Rican town. I have a lot of experience with the backgrounds that I write about, and I hope that I do it responsibly, and I hope that all writers do it responsibly. Not everybody has, but but I do think it's a moment that we have to take a moment right now to reflect and really, really be conscious as we go forward writing about different identities. When you teach your creative nonfiction class, what other pearls of wisdom do you do you impart to your students that maybe can benefit the listeners? here. Well, first of all, when they come into class, I, their phones are attached to their hands. All our phones are attached to our hands. And I make them peel them off their palms and put them, turn them off and put them into their backpacks. And they look at me like, how can this possibly be so that, you know, we can't, we can't look at our phones for 60 or 90 minutes. And so then I give the lecture about quieting your minds and how are you going to hear your own stories if you're always obsessed and scrolling through other people's stories? And that's, I think that's very important for this generation. I would absolutely never be a writer if I hadn't started writing in the late eighties before the internet, before social media. Um, maybe I would have, but I'm not sure I could have done it. I, I spent two years in Tokyo. That was the basis for the first writing that I did. I was there from 88 to 90. Phone calls were a dollar a minute. Letters took two weeks. The TV only showed Japanese programs. There was no computer, no screening, no 
movies to distract me. I had books and my journals. That was it. And that quiet, that going inside, that lack, the lack of distractions, I think is really key for a writer. And if you can't turn off the noise, you're going to struggle to hear what your characters are talking about. So, so that's what I, I tell them. And then, you know, the, the time is up and their phones are glued to their hands again, minus two. But I hope that when they go out and actually try to, you know, maybe try on this writing thing in a serious way, I hope that they can can learn to quiet the distractions because I don't think it works otherwise, or it's reflected in the writing. So interesting. It's true. I know I think about even like the only times that when I was at summer camp or something where I would go for eight weeks and read all these books and write all these letters. And I don't know, do people have that space in regular life? I don't know. I think it's the challenge of all the generations to come right now. And unless we learn how to do it, we'd be in trouble. But, and I'm not one of these, oh, the olden days. Yeah, I I know, I know. But I do think that we're pretty distracted right now. And writing takes an intense amount of quiet concentration and focus. Good writing. And by the way, I'm going to Japan. This will air later, but on your pub day, but I'm going to Japan on Friday. (laughs) You are? I am. I'm going to Tokyo with all the kids. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You'll have to, I don't know. We're doing a lot of Pokemon related things, but... um... That's fun. Yeah. If you have any recommendations, we can we can take this up on email or something. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So aside, last question, aside from all this amazing advice you've already given with the distractions, if you had one piece of advice for aspiring authors in general, what would it be? Maybe for novelists or I don't know. Um, tell the story you want to tell and tell it your way. And I feel like that's a little bit time-worn, but... Um, Nothing could be truer. Even as I was writing Wednesdays at one, I thought, I don't know, is this weird? I dabble in the speculative. Is this marketable? And when I put aside those doubts and just let the characters play on the page and trusted my own instincts, it worked. And as we, we've we talked about this, it's a slightly hard to characterize book because it's not quite a psychological thriller. It's, uh, you know, it sort of has rich characters and rich family drama, but I find like that's what's interesting about it. So, so don't just write to the genre because you think that's what's expected or don't write because you're going to fill some gap in the literary canon right now, write, write the story that really only you can tell. I love that. Sandra, I have so much respect for you. I really do. And I loved this episode, but mostly I've really loved working with you. And I'm so excited for your book to come out. And I feel honored you chose us. And it's like meant to be. I'm really excited. It is absolutely meant to be. I've thought that all along. I was so thrilled when um, I had just finished my book and you had started publishing house. And I had such a good experience on this podcast the first time with my memoir. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, kismet and sent it off to you. (laughs) Here we are. So exciting. Oh my gosh. Okay. 